now in a seriously divisive cultural moment. And the first place that we see that in culture is in the war films. While the war film has carved out a prominent space within the history of cinema, the 21st century has seen a significant shift in the characteristics that define it. Featuring in-depth analyses of contemporary films like The Hurt Locker, Zero Dark Thirty, Eye in the Sky, American Sniper, and others, the book The New American War Film details the genre's turn away from previously foundational themes of heroic sacrifice and national glory, instead emphasizing the procedural violence of advanced military technologies and the haptic damage inflicted on individual bodies, demonstrating not only how war films have shifted over the last two decades, but also how cultural narratives surrounding conflict, heroism, military technologies, and victimhood have broken down. This is the seventh book by author Robert Burgoyne, whose previous books include Film Nation. He is joined here in conversation with Kim Nelson. Hi, my name is Kim Nelson. I'm a film scholar and professor at the University of Windsor in Canada. Um, I'm also a filmmaker and I'm the author of the book Making History Move. And it's my great pleasure to talk to Robert Burgoyne today about his new book, The New American War Film. Hello, Kim. Thank you for doing this. My name is Robert Burgoyne. I'm a retired professor of film studies. I taught the last eight years of my career at University of St. Andrews in Scotland, where I was head of the department. I am the author of The New American War Film. It has really consumed most of my writing over the last 10 years. Well, it's such a pleasure to talk to you about this book. As always, I found your writing and thinking to be incisive, poetic, and elegant. And I was really taken with your analysis of film aesthetics and meaning alongside an exploration of the sociopolitical resonances of this new iteration that you found of the war film. It's really revelatory and insightful. I'd love to start off by asking you about the scene in The Hurt Locker, which you describe in chapter one. So it's when Sergeant Matt Thompson, played by Guy Pierce, is killed. And it's sort of this moment between the, the traditional hero that were, you know, of the films of yore gets sort of taken out and replaced by this different figure. And Sergeant William James, played by Jeremy Renner. You reference it as a pivotal and momentous scene and a moment of rupture between the 20th century war film and the new American war film. So I'm hoping that you can describe the scene and what it means sort of reaching outside the film as a shift in the genre as a whole. I think that scene, which comes at the very beginning of the film, is an extremely important introduction, not only to the film, but to the book and its themes as a whole. The character of Thompson, uh, Sergeant Thompson, played by Guy Pierce, has all the trappings of the charismatic Hollywood hero sort. He's handsome. He's uh, witty. He gets on with his men. Uh, he's got all the characteristics of the natural leader that would ordinarily be the kind of focus character in a war film. But he is killed, and in a particularly violent fashion, within the first 15 minutes of the film. And there's a sense that, uh-oh, we're in a different world now. This is not what I expected. This is not the way this is supposed to go. The scene both evokes the extraordinary pathos that is characteristic of the war film. That is, his death scene is tragic and hard to watch and really feels like a loss. And so there's a great deal of emotion invested 
in the character, even in the short 10 minutes that we've known him. And the way his death is portrayed, which is spectacular, he's in the 100-pound, 120-pound Kevlar bodysuit. He's not able to run fast enough in that suit to escape the range of the bomb, so that when the IED, the bomb secreted in a pile of garbage, when that goes off, he is so inhibited in his movement by that suit, and it slows him down so much that he can't get free. So the suit, which was meant to protect, it's supposed to be high-tech, it's supposed to be the best uh, possible armor against this kind of bomb, in fact, becomes his coffin. It's a complete change and reversal from what we might have expected, and it pushes the viewer into a whole new kind of frame for reading the war film. That is, you've got some of the codes and conventions of the classic war film are given. You've got the group of guys who are hailed from different backgrounds and different races. You've got this friendly banter back and forth. You've got a skilled and technical group that is in this environment uh, doing their job with practice and with skill. And then it all goes wrong. It all goes south. And this is within the first 15 minutes of the film. It induces a kind of disequilibrium. The viewer is thrown off of their genre guidelines, and now we're in a different world altogether. So we've got the invocation of the conventions, the narrative tropes, the kind of standard by-play, male, masculine by-play that we're familiar with from the war film, but then it changes, and it changes dramatically, and we don't know where it's going to go. Yeah, I was really taken with your description in the book and that it has this reverberation, you know, it within the film, but then across the entire genre of the war film. It's really fascinating. So could you speak to what the traditional approaches were to the war film before the new American war film? Really, this comes down to the standard tropes of the war film and the narrative conventions that are extremely uh, stable, in fact, over two millennia stable from the time of Homer, according to uh, Frederick Jameson. And these tropes or narrative conventions or schema are things like the rescue narrative, the heroic sacrifice, the idea of the band of brothers that finds, you know, it's this mystic brotherhood found only on the battlefield. It's the idea of the soldier as a kind of citizen soldier trying to earn his way back home, which comes from Saving Private Ryan. These and more are the standard narrative conventions and shapes that the war film is organized with. According to Frederick Jameson, this syntax or uh, these narrative shapes haven't changed really at all since the time of Homer, since the time of the Iliad. And he makes the point that it's remarkable that the war narrative hasn't changed given the changes in weaponry, the changes in what he calls the mode of production coming from Marx, and certainly in terms of the changes in aesthetic styles and aesthetic forms, including the medium. Uh, so his idea is that the war narrative hasn't changed because it's got a built-in story structure, and that story structure recurs throughout history. It's the war film is the war narrative is the most fundamental narrative of all. It recurs in every culture. It recurs in every period. It's been around for 2,000 plus years, but it seems not to have been responsive to all of these social changes, ideological changes, aesthetic changes, technical changes, none of it. What I'm arguing is that, in fact, it has changed. And this idea of the war film providing a set of cohesive and identifiable ways of being 
in nation and being a national subject and understanding what nation is about, that that has dissolved. What we get in the films that I treat in this book are evocations of those old conventions. That is, we recognize them, we hear them, we can sense that they're there, the old conventions. The films evoke these things and then show how they are no longer functional or that they're not able to organize the narrative, they're not able to shape the drama. These things are ghost paradigms, I think I say in the uh, book. They kind of haunt the text. They're vaguely discernible, if not plainly visible. And yet by calling these things up, these films then dramatically show how they no longer function. They no longer will command the kind of overall thematic power or no longer speak to the audience in the way they once did. In the book, you forward a compelling argument in the way I read it, that the 20th century war film had this binary track of leaning towards valor and a heroic narrative or an anti-war pacifist narrative. And you isolate in the 21st century this refracted and nihilistic view of war that leans towards pathos and pathology. So I'm wondering if you could uh, describe why you think the shift came about. The war film is one of the great genres. It's the oldest genre of film, and it emerged in 1898 uh, with Edison's Spanish War actualities. It was marketed more or less as a genre from the beginning. There were all kinds of product tie-ins, all kinds of civic events around it. Uh, it was set apart from the ordinary offerings of the film company. And uh, Edison even renamed his film company to the Wargraph uh, Film Company. So it's been around since the beginning, really, almost from the inception of cinema. But it has served many different purposes over time. In certain periods and in certain contexts of American 20th century history, the war film was a kind of reinforcement of an imperialistic mission. It promoted a kind of American virtue. It was set out as a way that we could understand the collective sacrifice that it takes to forge national unity or national subject. So it had this kind of reinforcing of the dominant culture ideology working in it. Just as important, though, is the tradition of the anti-war film. And the anti-war film is at least equally important as the imperialistic or the pro-war film, uh, or the war film that uh, is silent on the question of whether it's a virtuous or villainous activity to make war. But the anti-war film also has a kind of fixed set of moves and a fixed theme. And there's a way in which war is treated not as in any way redemptive, not as in any way reparative, not generative of any new life, the life of the nation, but rather utterly degenerate and a complete waste, a waste of life, a waste of youth, a violation really of a kind of national contract. That is, if you're going to war, if you're going to sacrifice, if you're going to risk your life, there should be some recognizable regenerative value to it. And the anti-war film uh, simply eschews all that and shows how this is absolutely not the case. This is a war, and the war film that is that we're watching is a story of loss. It's a story of bleakness. It has no symbolic or metaphoric value whatsoever. 
And so what I think is happening now is that that binary no longer holds. That is, we don't have that same kind of clear-cut understanding of the overall shape and orientation and value of the wars we're fighting. The wars have gone on forever. They are being fought in distant climes, very far removed geographically. It doesn't seem like there's any particular stake involved, and thus no kind of compelling narrative that you can assign to how these films are working in culture. That is, what they are doing is they are showing a kind of subtle and, in some cases, blatant and graphic shift in the way the culture sees itself and in the way society is working today. These divisions and insecurities that you get in American culture right now, I think it's a way in which the war film today speaks to that sense of unsettled history, of a historical future that is certainly not something that can be assumed to be working out in a favorable way. And there's a way in which the value of the films is almost as a kind of a seismograph. That is, it's showing the deep tectonic shifts that are taking place in American culture. The films that I treat question the foundational myths that the traditional war film would have supported or reinforced, but they don't offer an anti-war alternative that is set out as the only uh, moral alternative to the wars and the conflicts that we're currently engaged in. That binary no longer holds. And I'm wondering if you think this the shift that you're talking about is it more influenced by political changes, like the and the changes in war itself that happened sort of in the 9/11 era that you talk about in the introduction, or do you feel like this shift in mainstream war films has more to do with changes in audience expectations, um, the influence, for example, of the anti-hero becoming so popular, especially in series around the turn of the century with The Sopranos and The Wire, I mean, this influence coming from television to invite more complex, flawed characters, sort of undermining the traditional hero of the 20th century. So do you think all of these things are coming together in the film, or do you think it's there's one aspect that's more uh, responsible for this shift to the new American war film? Yeah, this is a charged question. I hear two questions there, and I'll, I'll address both of them. But the reason I say it's a charged question is it's very difficult to point to a particular event, let's say, even the Minnesota Press wanted me badly to weigh in on the influence of 9-11 on these films, and I hesitated to do it. I was a little reluctant to do it because I don't think you can assign a genre shift of the magnitude that I'm describing to a single punctual event. That is, it's always a combination of things. It's an accretion. There's an accretion of cultural changes, social changes, economic changes, the building up of a series of shifts that suddenly become visible when there's a shift in the genre that you can see that this is, it's got a multiple multivalent influence that will create a shift in genre codes or that will create a shift in art form altogether. But getting back to the two points, there's your bit about the anti-hero, Kim, fits into one of the paradigms that I do a lot with in the book, and that is the idea of productive pathology. 
uh, Thomas Elsesser, the great film theorist and historian uh, who passed away a couple of years ago, coined this term productive pathology. And in it, he talks about the way in which characters in war films today and in other forms of narrative as well have what we would ordinarily call a kind of neurosis or even a psychotic orientation. That is, they are attracted to danger. They put themselves on the line. There's a kind of furious seeking of danger and seeking of the close, intimate relationship with danger and death. They are solitary. They don't work with a team. The Sergeant James in The Hurt Locker is a good example, as are many others throughout the book. They are utterly skillful and completely at ease in these tense situations. They will put their colleagues in danger. This, too, is something that Sergeant James in The Hurt Locker illustrates well. There's no real concern for what may happen to their colleagues, to their men under their command. There's a pursuit of a kind of edge that imbues all of their acts. So when Elsa Sir uses the term pathology, in previous iterations of the war film, this, this would have been considered pathological behavior. It would be a soldier has now crossed the line, suicidally reckless. They are a danger to themselves and a danger to their troop. But in the case of the films and the characters that I'm treating in this book, their pathology actually is what makes them productive. It makes them better soldiers. It is the key to their success. And it becomes a kind of recurring lesson in the films and in the book, that this is actually a kind of adaptive mechanism. In this world of complete chaos and with no clear mandate giving meaning to their actions, their pathology, their obsessiveness, their absolute compulsion is the key to succeeding and surviving. So that's one part when you say the anti-hero. What I think we have is a brand new type of war hero, if you can call these characters heroes. It's something new in the history of the genre, and I would say new in the history of the art form. As I said earlier, I resisted identifying too specifically what has changed in American culture that could have led to the shift in genre. And one, of course, and it all kind of does necessarily, I suppose, go back at some level to 9-11. And one of the things that 9-11 did is it caused a challenge to national identity. The stories that we had told ourselves, the narratives that had sustained us, the ways in which we identify as Americans was challenged by the events of 9-11. This idea of the shining city on the hill being Washington, the idea that the territorial boundaries of the U.S. are inviolate, the kind of way in which suddenly our sense of unassailable superiority, both technically, morally, etc., was all put to the test. And one of the things that happened, uh, not immediately, because the immediate response to 9-11 was this huge patriotic upsurge and the restaging of kind of patriotic narratives, uh, the raising of the flag on the ruins of 9-11, uh, the ruins of the World Trade Center, the twin beams of light that were you know, shot from the ruins into the sky, for, which were there for, for months, I believe. Somewhat later, George W. Bush on the deck of the aircraft carrier declaring mission accomplished. All these things that actually looked to the iconography of earlier wars were trundled out and kind of made into a big show of patriotic fervor and uh, unity, I suppose. But very quickly, that became a way for a divisive uh, discourse. 
because the targeting of Muslims and the targeting of racial others and the targeting of immigrants that happened in the right-wing media very soon after 9-11 led to a sense of the breaking apart of the dominant fiction, uh, the idea that there is a kind of storyline that we can all identify with. That was really accelerated. Uh, I think the tensions that were in the culture were certainly there pre-9-11. I think there was a a real sense of a fissure going, uh, that this is a a world that is undergoing stress and is fissuring, uh, if I can use that word. But 9-11 really accelerated it and magnified it. And it wasn't long before it became a full-blown, you know, the culture wars that we're uh, hearing about these days might be able to be traced back to that even then I think there's this divisiveness in the culture as a whole. And the war film in its current manifestation gives us this sense of what is going on in a genre form where the large uh, narratives of identity are no longer in place and no longer functional. And the third thing, finally, I think, is that the fact that these wars are so distant geographically removed from the U.S., and they seem to have gone on forever. There's no closure. There's no sense of a redemptive script being worked through. And I think that the incident of 9-11 just magnified these elements and hastened them along. What I see happening is that the war film is, in a way, allegorical of a larger shift in national culture and a larger shift in social belief and in the sense of any kind of meta-narrative, narrative of nation. We are now entirely arguing of what is the meta-narrative of nation, what is the dominant fiction, which we can all kind of identify ourselves with. This has become the absolute subject of very contentious cultural exchanges over the last several years. Yeah, you know, war has not often been brought to the American territory. And in the book, you describe a transfer of affect so that these films shift, although there's not a shift in wars abroad, but there is a shift in centering the anguish of Westerners in wars overseas. And you you talk about the way that these films will be about the protagonists, but it's the opposing population, whether they're combatants or civilians, that are the ones that are truly imperiled. So could you talk a little bit about this transfer of affect and uh, this shift in the role of the protagonist and the uh, violence inflicted on an other population? Right. It's a very curious development in these films that was brought to my attention uh, by the external readers who did an absolutely wonderful job with the manuscript. Uh, and that is that the Western characters, the Western soldiers, are the agents of war, the agents of violence. In many cases, in the films I treat, they are the ones targeting the figures who they then identify with. There's a way in which the victims of war, the native population, I'll use the character Alia in Eye in the Sky, a young girl who wanders into the kill zone of a drone strike uh, minutes before the strike is, is to commence. There's a great debate among all of the kill team that has to decide whether to send the missile or not, given her presence there. And she is, of course, unaware of what is going on. She's unaware that she's being watched on three continents from the drone camera. Her every gesture is being observed. Her life and her being are subject to this calculation, the lesser of all possible evils type 
calculation because there's a terrorist uh, in the house that she's standing in for, or sitting in front of, a terrorist team that is about to go out and do a suicide bombing attack, and the military has X number of minutes before uh, that opportunity to take out that terrorist team will be ended. So there's a heightened, dramatic exchange between the drone pilots who don't want to release the missile because they don't want the little girl who they bonded with by watching her throughout the day, and the military establishment, the higher-ups, and the government establishment. As the debate is going back and forth, and as the time is ticking down, and as the secondary characters in the film are working so hard to try to get uh, Leah out of harm's way, there's a way in which the drone pilots become the intense carriers of emotion. They become the mediums of pathos. All of the stress, the anxiety, the moral decision that has to be made is registered through the faces of the drone pilots. Whereas the victim on the ground, who would seemingly be the subject of pathos in a traditional war film, this, this would be the character who we are identifying with. This is the character who's going to be the locus of sentiment and emotion and care. It's almost like that set of emotions that would ordinarily be associated with the victim of war are transferred to the agents of war, the very ones who are going to send the missile. As we watch the drone pilots suffer through this decision-making process and debate among themselves and debate with the superior officers, it's like the affect that would ordinarily be associated with the victims of war, in this case a child, and that this is a motif that comes up again and again in the films I treat in this book as the child victim of war, that emotion gets transferred to the agents of war where in a way we are uh, suffering along with the agents of war, that is the soldiers who are going to release the drone, uh, as they are sweating, their fingers are trembling, they're looking sideways at each other. And it's a real interesting move from what I think would be the traditional setup here with the pathos being embodied in the victim as opposed to the agents. But here it's the Western agents of war who become not only the agents, but the vectors of pathos as well. And that occurs time and again in these films. It occurs in the film Restrepo. It occurs in American Sniper. It's a common motif. This is something that I've not noticed before in war films of the past. And it's something that uh, I haven't fully worked out what the implications of this are. But, I th but it's a structure that really is prominent in these films. As I said, it's American Sniper, it's Restrepo, it's Eye in the Sky. Not Zero Dark Thirty, I wouldn't say, but to some degree also The Hurt Locker. So yeah, that leads into another aspect of these films that you isolate, which is the role of women and children emerging as a strong hallmark of the new American war film. Do you attribute that change to changes in the reality of war, or is it completely to do with the rise of feminism and multiculturalism and liberal pluralism that women and children who were always imbricated and involved in war are suddenly seen? Right. And I'm going to treat this as, again, two different aspects of a question. I'll talk about the women warriors first. In several of the films I treat, the primary agent of war is the women characters. And this is the case with Maya in Zero Dark Thirty, in Eye in the Sky, where it's the Helen Mirren character, who is the Colonel, Colonel Powell in the UK. In fact, Eye in the Sky, the three principal characters in the film, having to do with this 
question of war and its morality and its justifiability are all women. Colonel Powell, who is played by Helen Mirren, Angela Northman, who's actor whose name I can't recall at the moment, but she's the, the parliamentarian in England who is resisting the call to send the missile in. Uh, she is the one character in the hierarchy who resists this plan. And the little girl, Aaliyah, the victim. The narrative revolves around these three women and the drone pilots who become the kind of the source of pathos, the vector of pathos in the film. They really are levers. They're moving the plot along and they're doing this and that. But the three major figures for the unfolding drama are the three women, uh, in the one case, Aaliyah, the little girl. Maya in Zero Dark Thirty, the character of Marie Colvin in A Private War, who is a war correspondent. The female soldier figure has taken a prominent role in these films, but in a way that isn't remarkable. It's not like they have to justify their role in prosecuting the war narrative in any way, shape, or form. It's never questioned. They are never treated in a gendered manner in these films. They are professionals. It's interesting to me that in the typical male-dominated war film, war narrative, it follows a kind of Bildungsroman pattern. That is, it's the emergence of the young man by the hard experience that he gets in war. And if you think of Platoon, or you think of Full Metal Jacket, Born on the Fourth of July, or even Saving Private Ryan, I mean, these are about this kind of emergence of the young man into experience and knowledge through the hard incidents of war. With these characters, Maya, Colonel Powell, the character of Marie Colvin, that absolutely doesn't hold. There's no building's Roman formula. It's not like these women characters, women soldiers, are learning about themselves and learning about the world by their hard experiences in war. They are professional, fully committed to their work, pathologically productive, if you will, but not part of the old scheme where the female soldier was always held to be kind of a masculinized female. That is, adopting all the codes and conventions and the manners of the male soldiers. In these films, this is not the case. This is like an accepted place for women to be now, it appears. And it's a big change. And the fact that it's not emphasized by the films that this is a change, I think, is of interest, too. As far as children in the war film, it's a standard kind of trope, the child victim of war. When you see it, I mean, I'm thinking of Eisenstein's Battleship Potemkin, for example, where the child is, there's two child victims in that uh, Odessa Steps sequence. There's um, the child victim of war is, a, is something we've seen many, many times in the traditional war film, but it always carried a kind of anti-war conviction, an anti-war meaning. Even if that anti-war meaning didn't extend through the rest of the film, the discrete moment of the child being victimized, the child being killed, the child being wounded, is set out as a kind of indictment, an indictment of war's injustice, an indictment of war's victimizing of these characters. And this appears in our films, in the films in this book as well, that is the child victim of war. But that, the kind of emotions associated with that migrate over to the soldiers, uh, to the agents of war, who are portrayed as children in their own right. They're portrayed as youthful, inexperienced, emotional. They break down in tears. They can't accept that one of their, in Restrepo, that one of their colleagues has been killed. 
So once more, the transfer of affect that we were talking about a few minutes ago from the victims of war to the agents of war, that takes place when it comes to the child victim of war to the agents of war as well, who are portrayed, again, as vulnerable youth, as I say in the book, lost in a wilderness of pain. In some ways, you could almost call this the granular level of war cinema. You know, certain tropes, certain conventions, certain themes that had, a, if not a fixed meaning, at least a fixed emotion associated with them, that has also been altered in the course of these works. I'd also like to ask you about the shift in the portrayal of the home front. So obviously, through the 20th century, as conscription's gone away and the material sacrifices that had to be made, families had family members fighting in the world wars. There is conscription during the Vietnam War. You know, it was such a massive social change in the world wars where the men were gone and everything was scarce and it just completely affected people's lives. Can you talk to the way uh, these films, I guess in particular American Sniper, but how any of these films deal with this incredible shift in the way things function on the home front in the United States? I start the book by pointing out the ways in which American culture in the post 9-11 period, I'll just use that as a convenient marker, has become consumed with military iconography. That is, the mentality of the period is militarized. We have a plethora of military insignia, military reenactments. There's a sense in which there's this cultural fetishism for the military in some ways. I mean, if you think of all the places in American life where there is a kind of martial and militarized iconography, flyovers, almost any sports event these days, live sports event, includes some sort of marching of the colors or some sort of salute of some sort. You've got the popularity of military fashion on the street, the extreme popularity of uh, things like paintball, just a range of cultural manifestations of a kind of militarization of ordinary life. Of course, the most striking aspect of this is the January 6th riot at the Capitol, where this was conceived entirely as a military kind of operation. And the iconography of the flags and of uh, the weaponry and the camouflage and the helmets and all of that. But really, it's present at political rallies uh, and political events all around the U.S. There's this kind of sense of a culture that is more and more invested, I suppose, in the iconography of the military, the iconography of war. That really uh, is a change, I think. There's a kind of uh, enthusiasm for this iconography and for this, this sensibility that I think is something new. The home front, what I would argue here is that the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, there's a contagion that goes on. It's a contagion of violence, a contagion of this kind of warlike mentality. I think it has to do with how long the wars had lasted, how remote they are, and what the, the sense of, again, of a, trying to find some sort of narrative, some sort of meta-narrative that one can pin one's desires to and that can motivate someone's emotional life and give that emotional life some kind of content. What has increasingly happened, it seems to me, is that the war mentality, the war experience of the last 25 years has, in effect, bled into domestic culture as a whole, where we have this predominance of military thinking, 
warlike activities and the celebration of war in a kind of almost entirely uncritical way. That connection between the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq and all of the other secret wars that were waging all over the world and the domestic space of America, the domestic politics of America, I think those things are clearly linked. It's not central to the films that I'm treating in the book, but it is central to the overall point of the book. That is, we are now in a seriously divisive cultural moment, and I think the first place that we see that in a kind of plain way in culture is in the way the war films, codes and conventions and narrative schemas have changed. Yeah, it's interesting because there's this valorization of the military in the culture that's coming hand in hand with this complete lack of sacrifice on behalf of most people whose family members are not fighting, who are not, you know, materially sacrificing for the war effort and things like that. It's an interesting convergence. And it seems that a lot of the divisiveness and culture that's maybe playing into this has to do with the massive changes in technology. A lot of people are talking about the wars that emerged after the invention of the printing press. And then now with the internet and that a lot of the division and partisanship that we're facing might be a result of this technological change that obviously had a huge impact on the weapons of war. Um, What are you reading about what these films have to say about the insertion of digital technology and particular drones? What impact does that have on wars as viewed through these collection of films? Well, that's a big question. The war at a distance, of course, is one of the great celebrated paradigms of military thinking uh, over the last 30 years. And the idea of being able to fight war in a way that does not put our, quote unquote, soldiers in danger, all done remotely, has been promulgated with great enthusiasm in the military world. War waged by robots, war waged by drones, war waged by attacking infrastructure. This is kind of like the new model of military culture. War at a distance, this idea, uh, which has been very enthusiastically embraced, has given rise to what I call an unfortunate neologism, which is post-heroic war, which has such a nice, peaceful, kind of benign sound to it, post-heroic war. But what post-heroic war means is that you're not putting boots on the ground anymore. You're not sending soldiers into battle zones. You're not in a framework where heroism could actually unfold. Post-heroic war means war at a distance. It means that you're going to be fighting without, as you said earlier, any risk or any sacrifice, at least to the soldiers on our side. Though the victims of war, the people who are being targeted, that's a, a whole other thing. War at a distance is one of the paradigms that gets into several of the parts of the book in the film Eye in the Sky, which is the drone war film, all of the, the myths of war at a distance, that it is objective, that the soldiers are not affected by it, that they're releasing missiles from miles high in the sky. So there's a way in which the impact of that kind of weaponry and the impact of that kind of conflict is going to be uh, minimal on the soldiers. Eye in the Sky shows that it's not that in fact they're looking at their victims on a screen 18 inches away. Uh, There's a real intimacy there. The intimacy between the target and the agent is pronounced. And many times the drone pilots, for example, have been following the person they're targeting for days or even weeks. 
they develop a real intimacy and a real understanding and a real, in the case of I in the Sky, there's a kind of empathy there. The fact that War at a Distance is supposed to spare soldiers the trauma, the emotional intensity of actual combat is absolutely not the case. And the film makes this really clear. It's devastating. And in fact, we know that there are greater incidents of PTSD now in the American military than there has ever been before, by a lot. But on the other hand, you've also got a competing paradigm, which is the idea that the irreducible, essential component of war is this agonistic struggle between one side and another, between one soldier and another. There's a way in which the physical and tactile engagement with the experience of war is lionized in culture today. In popular culture, if you think of the celebrity that is afforded to the Navy SEALs, the celebrity that is afforded to Delta Force, the fascination with these kinds of elite commando groups, it's a refutation of the idea of war at a distance as a kind of important cultural paradigm. It may be important to the military, but I think in terms of the way the culture understands war and understands the military and understands what war entails, I think it still is essentially that kind of agonistic struggle, the tactile engagement, the full-on physical investment in battle and in conflict. And the films that I treat in this book truly emphasize the continuation of interest in that kind of physical engagement in war. There's an interesting dichotomy there. On the one hand, there's the keen enthusiasm among the military for robotic war, the revolution in military affairs, they call it. But in the culture, I think the real interest has to do with this somatic, corpographic engagement in the battle space. Yeah, and I, that was so interesting because reading your treatment of Eye in the Sky, my thought would be that drone warfare would be akin to a video game and that it would be totally dehumanizing. And so that film really brings the audience into a different understanding of the implications, and it's fascinating. You talk about the films you treat in the book. All chapters are devoted to films with actors that are scripted, performance-based films, except for one. So I'm wondering if you can speak to why you decided to have one chapter dedicated to four different versions of the war film in documentary and photographs. Yeah, the film Kim is uh, speaking of is Restrepo. It's the works of Tim Hetherington and Sebastian Junger. Restrepo is the full-length film. The book of photographs is called Infidel. There's another photo collection, a short magazine piece, Into the Korengal by Hetherington. And then there's a video essay, which you can find on YouTube very easily, called Sleeping Soldiers, also by Hetherington. And this is a documentary project, and it's the only one that I treat in this book. Uh, the rest are dramatic fiction films. With the documentary project that Hetherington and Junger uh, set out, where they embedded themselves with U.S. troops for over 12 months in the extraordinarily dangerous theater of war, the Korngal Valley in Afghanistan, it deals with a part of our war story in the contemporary period that is almost never talked about. It's never rendered. The war in Afghanistan has been massively underrepresented in American culture. So this is a series of works that actually deals centrally with that war and with the experience of the American troops in that war. One of the things that came through for me was the ways in which the soldiers, as depicted there, 
in some ways see themselves as avatars, probably not the right word, of fictional types. That is, they are playing roles that they have imbued from war films of the past. So there's a kind of byplay there between the two. But the other part of that, I found a way finally to put the different parts of Hetherington's work into a context where I think it can be seen not as an imperialistic pro-soldier, pro-war narrative, which some people have accused Restrepo and Infidel and others of their works as being pro-war, siding with the soldiers, identifying with the soldiers, being completely uncritical. I wanted to show that by looking at certain evocations of what I call genre memory, there's another way of reading these moments. There's another way of reading the scene where the the children are wounded and injured and we're getting big close-ups of the children's faces, bloodied faces. There's a way in which a certain set of genre memories are evoked in the documentary work. And these genre memories are, of course, coming from the fictional side of the equation. But we are able to read certain moments, certain camera moves, certain emphases, certain dramatic editorial choices as a kind of critique, as a kind of distance from the military project. Though Hetherington is a celebrated photographer, and he passed away, he was killed in Libya soon after Restrepo was made, as a matter of fact. I wanted, in a way, to to fully engage with his work beyond what had already been done critically. One thing that I think is such a strength of your writing throughout this book, and also in your um, essay about They Shall Not Grow Old, is you will refer to other writings on the films that I find tend to be more binary, sort of writing these films off or, you know, just so many uh, responses to war films are very partisan. And you'll always acknowledge critiques or but you wade into it and really take a much more complex view. And it's, it's such a strength of the book throughout. I'm also wondering, uh, since these films were made, there's really been a shift. There was an ending to the war in Afghanistan that wasn't in place when these films were made. And also since these films were made, there's been a lot of recanting quite recently from people who were on the record in supporting George W. Bush's adventures into Iraq and the Iraq war. And they've said they were wrong, which is you know not something people often do. How do these films look now in light of the sort of disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan and the handover to the Taliban and this really large scale mea culpa that the Iraq war was not an intelligent response to 9-11? I would say for the most part, they are much more gritty and hands-on and deal primarily with the grunts, with the soldiers on the ground with the actual process of making war. The very large geopolitical questions that are now being asked about the war in Afghanistan and the war in Iraq are not explicitly articulated in these works. They're, they're granular. They're dealing with the experience of the soldier there on the ground individually, their own psychic experience, their own emotional, their own physical experience. In the case of the withdrawal from Afghanistan, it really has left us in suspension. There's a way in which this is not the triumphal ending that war and war films have always uh, celebrated. There's no sense of redemption 
there's no sense of regenerating the culture or regenerating the society through war, which is, again, one of the, the standard modes. One of the things that I think is, is interesting in these films, and it's one of the things that separates these films and the new war film from the traditional war film, the traditional war film is teleologically organized. It's a very straightforward, linear narrative, typically, you know, with the uh, rising and falling structure, the various dramatic arcs ending in a resolution, ending in a, in a clear-cut endpoint. If you think of Saving Private Ryan, for example, in the way that that film ends, it wraps up. And now this is something that is behind us, and we are fully looking back on an event that had a kind of a, a relatively fixed endpoint. That's not the case with the films that I treat in this book. They are recursive. That is, you go back and start over again. At the end of the film, there's no sense of resolution. There's no sense of teleological closure. There's only a sense that it's going to continue. And in the case of uh, The Hurt Locker, it's staged that way. Now he's not in Iraq, he's in Afghanistan. But he's starting off uh, with his you know, bomb disposal suit on, and he's walking down a street in Afghanistan about to begin again. And so there's a way in which the closure that you expect from war, that it is finite in its duration and finite in its geographic extent. I don't think that that's operating anymore. And the films, in a sense, tell us that this isn't over yet. And when we see the characteristics of drone warfare and eye in the sky, where there is no fixed boundaries to the battle space, where there's no sense that taking out this one target is now going to end this kind of conflict, this is a continuing story. And finally, so the historical film always makes strong statements about the present. Um, in your book, The Historical Film, you really eloquently describe this as the, the present being stamped on every frame. So historical films are always inserting a point of view in the way that they interpret the past. And this seems especially trenchant for the war film. I was wondering what role you think the war film plays in shaping the public consciousness and also in inciting, creating a public dialogue? Hmm. This is an important question. Let me address the idea of the public dialogue first. Historical films always are regarded with suspicion because there is a sense that it's a drama on the one hand. Certain aspects of historical films are fiction, not the events necessarily, but there's fictional characters, there's fictional situations, the dialogue is scripted, blah, blah. There's a way in which people are absolutely convinced that this is going to give people the wrong picture, that history is much more complicated. There needs to be a debate going on that you can't really get in a film per se. A historian would say there's no footnotes in a historical film. How can this be trusted? How can we actually take this as some sort of insightful treatment of the past? But one of the things I've always said about the historical film is it doesn't unfold in a vacuum. It actually starts a dialogue because the historians who are looking at a historical film about a certain period or certain figures are going to weigh in in places that are culturally prominent. Oftentimes, there's a kind of lively internet debate that takes place about the, the strengths or the weaknesses of a particular film, a particular take on history. There are experts who are called in to go over 
the accuracy of the film in terms of the way the events are portrayed, but also in the way the artifacts of the past are used and the way the costumes look and uh, the way the lighting looks. And so really it puts history into the public sphere. The historical film stimulates this kind of important conversation among different aspects of society about the past. And in some cases, like The Free State of Jones, a film that we both talked about at some length, these are events that nobody knows about. And so there's a way in which something from the past that is obscure or has been forgotten or has been ignored now gets talked about and debated. And there are follow-ups to it. There's documentaries about the making of the film itself. There's breakout sessions, and sometimes even panels given at uh, conferences that are devoted to a particular historical film. And you get lots of interaction that way. In terms of the general subject question about how the historical film itself and how that works in culture and how it promotes a kind of social exchange, should reassure anybody who is worried, it's usually historians, and what it does is it stimulates this larger cultural conversation. And um, I'm hoping that you can give uh, listeners a taste of the book and if you'll read a, a passage from it. I would love to. Tim and I have talked about this a, a little bit, uh, which passage to read. And what I've decided to go with is a bit from the last chapter of the book, which is on American Sniper. This was not only the last chapter in terms of it being chapter six, but it was the, the last chapter that I wrote. And it was only after I had already finished what I thought was the manuscript that I realized there's something missing. There's an elephant in the room that I haven't dealt with. Why? I think I was afraid to. I was chicken. It's a big film, and it's very controversial. And uh, American Sniper has a kind of a vexed reputation uh, among certain parts of our group. So when I decided to write on American Sniper, I figured I'm just going to take it on and I'm going to do what I can with it. What I discovered is surprising. What the film said to me was something quite different than the way it's been read in critical dialogue and in culture overall. I've written on Clint Eastwood before. I've written essays on Flags of Our Fathers and on Letters from Iwo Jima. And um, I see this fitting into a kind of larger pattern in his work. But let me now just read the first two pages or so. This is called American Pastoral, American Sniper. Two scenes, one at the beginning of the film and one near the end, create a chilling formal rhyme that underlines the larger patterns of violence threaded through American Sniper. In the opening sequence, Petty Officer Chris Kyle, played by Bradley Cooper, the sniper of the film's title, is seen at the start of his first assignment in Iraq watching over a city road as a convoy of Marines is about to drive through. A burqa-clad woman and a young boy walk slowly out of a doorway. Kyle is on alert. There is something about her way of walking that seems odd. As he watches them through his sniper's scope, the woman reaches inside her robe and takes out a large grenade. She hands it to the boy, who begins running toward the convoy in order to get close enough to fling the weapon. As he lifts the grenade for the throw, the film cuts away from the action to a series of flashback scenes of Kyle's boyhood, his first hunting experience, his violent rescue of his brother, who was being beaten by a bully, the lesson his father imparts at the dinner table concerning the wolves, the sheep, and the sheepdog who protects the sheep. We then return to the scene in Iraq as Kyle pulls the trigger. 
As we watch through the scope, the young boy collapses, a bullet wound in the middle of his chest. The woman, perhaps his mother, then rushes to him, picks up the grenade, and tries to hurl it at the convoy herself. Kyle shoots her as well, causing the grenade to fall short. His first two shots as a sniper in Iraq have thus been directed at a young boy and his mother. Actions that may have saved 10 Marines, he is told, but that clearly exact a psychic toll. Fast forward to the last sequence of the film. The setting is Kyle's suburban home, a sunlit interior in the middle of the day. The scene begins with the camera focusing in close up on a large revolver pointed into the living room as Kyle walks silently through the house. Framed at waist height, we also see the rodeo belt he had won in a contest earlier in the film. The camera takes in Kyle's young daughter, who smiles and giggles at him, and then his young son, also smiling and playing a video game. Kyle finds his wife in the kitchen, stops in the doorway, cocks the revolver, and speaks. She turns to him laughing. The nightmare quality of this scene, in which a pistol cocked and seemingly aimed at a loving family seems to be a normal form of behavior, eliciting smiles and laughter rather than terror, captures the complex and devastating critique of violence in American culture that Clint Eastwood sets forth in this film. The violence of war haunts the American dreamscape, the film suggests, as it draws a series of parallels between the war in Iraq and the culture of violence that has penetrated U.S. domestic life. And I will stop there. Bob, I want to thank you and congratulate you on the new American War film. It's a penetrating engagement with the aesthetics and ethics of these films. And, you know, in your hands, you open a pressing and important dialogue about culture and politics. It's all wrapped up in the book, and uh, it's, it's wonderful. Thank you, Kim. Thanks. This has been a University of Minnesota Press production. The book, The New American War Film, is available from University of Minnesota Press. Thank you for listening.